time to time, I am, I am blessed to get to have a little conversation or correspondence on the issue of newer songs versus older songs. I always enjoy those conversations, sometimes more than the people I'm having them with, but if you like older songs, well, today has been your day thus far. We opened the service this morning by singing All Creatures of Our God and King. That is based on an English translation of a poem written by St. Francis of Assisi in about the year 1225. So that one's 800 years old. We sang from Psalm 121. That's about 3,000 years old must ask you to forgive me because in a moment I am going to quote extensively from a much, much newer song. A song that is only approaching 300 years old. The ink is practically still wet, these new songs. This lyric was written by Charles Wesley in 1736, published at least in 1736. 36, astonishingly new compared to some of what we've sung this morning. I kid, but this is one of the great hymn lyrics. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love how can it be that thou my God should die for me he left his father's throne above so free so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh, my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Boldly I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be? 
that thou, my God, should die for me. We have spent the last several weeks making our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The argument having been made over and over again that those who are right with God are right with God because they have been made right with God by his gracious gift purchased by him on the cross, extended in love by him to all who will turn from their sin and follow him. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. This is the, the message of our faith. And there is no clearer summation than this single sentence that ends 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you grasp the truth of this chapter, indeed the truth even of this verse, then you grasp the theology of Christianity. The heart of the matter is this amazing substitutionary atonement. The death of Christ on the cross as payment for the sins of people and the sins of people applied to Christ on the cross. I had a good friend ask me before the eight o'clock service, a good friend who is a very proficient Bible teacher, asked me before the start of the eight o'clock service, how in the world are you going to handle 2 Corinthians 5.21 in only a bit more than a half hour? And I said, well, the good news is the eight o'clock service where he was attending is constrained because there's a 9.30 service. <laughs> the 9.30 service is constrained because there is an 11 o'clock service. You should have brought your lunch today. No. I shall try to be fair to both the time and the text, but I am skiing over the wave tops with this of all verses. Let's make our way through it. Roman number one on your outline, the greatest grace. The greatest grace. These three astounding words. For our sake. I have good friends for which I would do most anything. I have people with whom I have the kind of relationship, family members, dear friends, that if they, if they ask something of me that is in my power to give them, it's a no-brainer, I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to do it for them because they have, they have proven themselves or been positioned in, in, in life as, as family members and dear friends. 
We weren't. In fact, in our own nature, we aren't. The for our sake of verse 21 is not an attractive group of people. It's not the good guys because the word of God makes it clear that apart from Christ, there are no good guys. Letter A on your outline, we are alienated from God. He has done what he has done for our sake, though we were alienated from God. Isaiah 59, verse two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now that doesn't mean that he's unaware. He is both omniscient and omnipresent. And nothing in his universe has ever made a sound he hasn't heard. But he doesn't engage. And it's not his fault that's at fault. It is our sin, it is our iniquity that has alienated us entirely from our creator. You've heard me say we are, we are born citizens of a world at war with God. And that citizenship fits us like a glove before we come to Christ. For we are not just alienated from God, we are rebellious against him at heart. Romans chapter eight, verse seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh which is certainly the mind of every person outside of Christ. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Incapacitated by our alienation, our rebellion, and our sin. I cringe a bit every time I hear the lost world and those who are outside of Christ described as sin sick. Sin sick isn't the half of it. Before you came to faith in Christ, dear brother or sister, if in fact you are in Christ, and I pray and believe that so many of you are, before you came to faith in Christ, you were not sin sick. You were sin dead, dead. Apart from that movement of the spirit that Wesley describes so poetically as the, the quickening ray diffused from the eyes and mind of God, you would still be dead. And if you're here this morning and you are outside of Christ, my prayer for you is that there would be some stirring, some hope, some awareness that there must be more, some desire to know your creator. If you have that stirring this morning, be assured it is not coming from within you. It is a grace gift. And oh, I would plead with you, respond in repentance while for you the door remains open. For we are dead apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You say, wait a minute, Brother Russell. It's a pretty dark picture of where humanity is. How many of you who are parents ever had to teach your children the art of greed? No, you're not being greedy and selfish enough. Let me, let me work on you. Anybody ever had to train their child to be a more passionate liar? Nope. They got that from you in the birth package. Just as you got it from your parents and they got it from theirs and they got it from theirs all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Well, Brother Russell, if I, if I believe that, I, I believe that my self-esteem would suffer. After all, I'm being told out there constantly that my self-esteem is the most important thing. I mean, we had a whole month celebrating pride not that long ago. Self-esteem. Our world is surfing into hell on a wave of self-esteem. There are platforms like this one where you will be told to celebrate how wonderful and worthy you are of God's love because you're just such a prize. Now to be clear, you are magnificent in your createdness because you are an image bearer of the living God and that is no small thing. But to celebrate the glory of you in light of creation as though there were no corruption is to hold to a pathologically flawed view of man. Our createdness has been clobbered by our corruptness such that we are not worthy of his love. He does not love us because we are worthy. He doesn't love us because of anything that's true about us. He loves us because of who he is. What he has chosen to do for his people for our sake is astonishing grace. Though we were alienated, rebellious, and dead, nonetheless, in astonishing love, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friend, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ and that truth has somehow come to be stale or dusty or old hat to you, I call you to a reawakened passion. 
This is why it makes sense that the word of God tells us that we are to give thanks in everything. Because on the, on the worst day you will ever have in this life, and please hear me, I am not making light of your bad days. I've been pastoring people for a lot of years. I've been with some people on some horrifically bad days. On those horrifically bad days, if you are in Christ, it remains the case that everything that would have destroyed you forever has been resolved in your favor forever. Be thankful. Glory to God. This greatest grace has led, Romans 2, Roman 2, pardon me, to the greatest gift. The greatest gift. For our sake, the greatest grace. Here, the greatest gift. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He bore the debt. We just sang. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. That's true. He died the only utterly unjust death the earth has ever seen. I know that there are deaths that we would say are, are, are the result of a horrific accident. We have said things like, well, he's just, he's, he died too soon. There have been cases in, in justice systems where the wrong person has suffered a capital punishment. But the wages of sin is death. And no sinless person ever faced death except for the one sinless person. Cosmically speaking, all other deaths are just. His death wasn't. And so it created the space that an utterly just God could apply his death as punishment and payment for the sin debt of others. Couldn't have done that apart from some specific characteristics. First, letter A on your outline, his sonship. His sonship. Hebrews chapter one, beginning at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, not just God the Son, but the Son of God. As fully, well, how shall I say it? He was entirely human and he was not merely human. His death is not the death of another martyr, no matter how virtuous a martyr he would have been. His death was 
the very nature and essence of God pulling death into himself with eternal consequences for all who believe. Not only his sonship, but his sinlessness. See, if he ever committed one sin, then his death is for his own sin. The wages of sin, death, being carried out on him. But he never sinned. He lived on this earth in human, um, human form in that he was by form human. To say he lived in human form is not to say he was pulling some illusion. It was not a human disguise. It was humanity, and he lived on the earth for decades. And yet the word of God, Hebrews 4, 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. His sonship, his sinlessness. And yet on the cross, he dies. Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Christ came, and yet God the Holy Spirit gave the prophet Isaiah a very clear view of what's going on there on the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He became sin that we could become righteousness. The imputation of our sin to him, the imputation or reckoning of his righteousness to us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This great grace and this great gift results in the great gain. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of the flaws in both my heart, my judgment, and all of my heart, my judgment, and my memory, I don't know my sin history as thoroughly as God does. I am appalled at what I'm capable of. I am appalled at what I have done the lies I have told, 
the things I have taken that were not mine. The greed, the lust, the dishonor of which my heart has been and remains capable. astonishes and grieves me. You say, Brother Russell, I don't know that I would be comfortable admitting that in front of a few hundred people. Well, the good news is I know it all to be true about you as well. I don't have any illusions about me or you. I have been declared righteous. I have been adjudicated by the Supreme Court of the universe and declared fully, finally, and forever innocent. It is finished. Some of you might say, Brother Russell, if I believed that, I'd live like a pig knowing I could get away with it. Well, you're not the first one to make that possible observation. In fact, Paul wrote a couple paragraphs about that. I'll be addressing this week and beyond the notes. But meanwhile, let us examine this greatest gain. First, let's look at the cancellation. The cancellation. The record against us who are in Christ has been obliterated. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's gone. It's gone. The record of your sin debt, child of God, is gone. If you are in Christ this morning, what a glorious truth that is. If you are not in Christ, what a gracious and sobering reminder that debt is still accumulating for you. And it will take you in an eternity in hell to pay it off. You'll never reach the end of it. The compound interest will outrun you for an eternity on your sin debt. Oh, today. The word of God says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you are outside of Christ today, you must repent. We are told in our era that we mustn't point out the sin of sinful people. We'll hurt their feelings and send them away. It's not loving. Well, I respectfully submit that for those trapped in sin, including its eternal hellish consequences, there is one and only one way out. That is the bridge of repentance. 
And if we tell them that repentance is not necessary, we burn down the bridge. And we are complicit in their eternal condemnation. That is not love. That is hatred and recklessness. The cancellation of our sin debt. But more than just the cancellation of the debt, there is also the imputation, the reckoning of his righteousness. This morning's verse says it, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We also see it similarly expressed in Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, I gotta stop there for a second. Some of y'all, every time you hear the word elect, you have to reach for an antacid tablet. For some of y'all, that word just freaks you out. Don't let it. It simply means those folks who are born again. It's a common word in the New Testament. It has its roots in the notion that the living God is in charge of his universe. If you're acquainted with the Bible, that one shouldn't surprise you. Who will successfully accuse God's born-again people of anything? Here it is. It is God who justifies the supreme court of the universe from which there can be no appeal has ruled and for God's people the verdict is innocent, done. We are justified. We are credited with the very righteousness of Christ declared to be just before God. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. So many outcomes, one of which is a life of transformation. Pastor Peter alluded to this when he dealt with it, he didn't allude to it, he dealt with it quite well when we were up a few verses last Sunday, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that formerly alienated, rebellious, dead soul. If anyone is in Christ, however, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new birth we are given changes us. Before, when we were trapped in our sin, we did what we did because we were who we were. The followers of Jesus Christ follow Christ, doing what they do because they are who they now are. And yes, the word of God gives us guidance that we may know him better and follow him more dearly, but the transformation that has occurred is the driver of our lives. If you are unfamiliar with that transformation, I lovingly caution you. 
Examine your salvation. Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted him by faith? Galatians 2.20 expresses it like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Which leads to letter D, the invitation. You must, if you are outside of Christ, you must turn from your sin and trust him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. He extends his expectation. Paul said in Acts 17, he commands all men everywhere to repent. You are the object of that command. And if there is in you an inclination to respond that is not arising from within you. Romans three twenty. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Will you believe this morning? The invitation is not about treading the aisles in a Baptist church. It's not about repeating a rote prayer that someone else recites to you. God has used all manner of methods and devices down the years because he's gracious. But you will come to faith in Christ when you come to faith in Christ. As you heard us say earlier in this service, we believe that the public profession of that faith is when you follow the Lord in believer's baptism. What you must do now is cry out to him in your own heart, in your own words. There's not a single instance in scripture where anybody leads in, in anybody in what we have sometimes come to call the sinner's prayer. There's not a single instance in scripture that remotely resembles, you pray this prayer and mean it. Not once. You, child of God, be grateful for the salvation that found you. Praise God you turned from your sin and trusted Jesus. You who are outside of Christ, 
You are one heartbeat away from the just wrath of a holy God. Repent. Trust him to save you, and he will now and forever. You will be his child. Oh, the urgency of that. If you want to talk to someone about that, I'll be around for a while after the service. Look at me. I don't hide easily. The heart of the Christian gospel. Our sin laid upon him so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me?